Welcome to another episode of Public Problems. Before we begin our usual introduction, I'd like to make a couple of announcements. The first announcement is that this is the next to last episode for this season. This season is going to have eight episodes, and the final episode will be released in mid-December. While we're taking a break from the podcast, we're going to have a public classroom available, a seminar, for five weeks in January, where we recap the evidence from the podcasts, along with a couple of other lectures. You can register for this class through a Google form that I'm going to make available both on the blog at justinbullock.org and on our Facebook page at Public Problems Podcast. Registration will be open from December 1st to December 15th, and the course is free. So with that in mind, um, this is again the next to last episode of Season 1 of the Public Problems Podcast, and in this episode I have a chat with Kent Portney, and we talk about sustainability, uh, economic development, and kind of center around that that discussion around cities and how cities can pursue um, different strategies to both keep environmental sustainability in mind and economic growth. So thanks again for following along, and I hope you enjoy the episode. back to another episode of Public Problems. Today I'm with Kent Portney. Kent is a professor at the Bush School of Government and Public Service. He is also the director of the Institute for Science, Technology, and Public Policy at Texas A&M University. Kent's areas of expertise include environmental policy, urban sustainability, urban politics, economic inequality, and policy analysis. He has authored or co-authored 11 books on such topics as economic and environmental development, citizen participation, and teaching critical reasoning in the social sciences. And he's written numerous journal articles on urban sustainability, urban politics, and the local nonprofit sector. His two most recent books are Sustainability, uh, which came out in 2015, and Taking Sustainable Cities Seriously from 2013. Both are published by MIT Press. We're going to talk a little bit about both of those books today. Um, and framing some of the conversation around particularly the taking sustainable cities seriously. Uh, but let me start by saying thanks, Kent. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come chat with me. My pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me uh, on your podcast. On the podcast. You, you know the term. Look at that. <laughs> um, so I, what I'd like to do, I think, is build a little bit, um, not tie it to one specific work or get too lost in the details of them, but build a little bit from the book that I just mentioned, Taking Sustainable Cities Seriously, and uh, an article from uh, Cityscape that I looked through that we discussed some uh, called Local Sustainability Policies and Programs as Economic Development is the New Economic Development Sustainable Development. And what I want to do maybe over the next hour or so is lay out what some of these terms mean as you perceive them, and then uh, sort of take on this what is what has historically been, although I think the the narrative around it has maybe shifted, but this idea that there's a uh, tension between economic development and uh, being sustainable, and we'll kind of tackle that on. You tackle that in, in several, in, in the book and in the essay, um, and then talk a little bit about some of your ideas about smart growth and the evidence for what's related with those things. That sound like an okay way to... Sounds fine. Let's do it. Excellent. So when you say sustainable cities, just so the listeners have an idea of what, what that means, what are you talking about when you say sustainable cities? What I'm mainly talking about is going back to the original ideas of sustainability that were put forth 20, 25 years ago, which is combining the environment, protection of the environment, with economic growth and development, and with the pursuit of equity or equality in uh, various delivery of services and such things that cities do. I was intrigued by it because, by this idea, because um, uh, the, the common wisdom is that in order to protect the environment, you need to, you need to sacrifice economic mm-hmm. growth and development. And, or if you want to maximize economic growth and development, you need to sacrifice the quality of the biophysical environment. The idea of sustainability says, no, that's a false trade-off, that there's a lot more to it than that. And that caught my attention. So sustainability is really about growing an economy, whether it's a city, 
or a state or a nation, at the same time, you're protecting and improving the quality of the biophysical environment, that the two can, can and actually do have to go hand in hand. That's what, what really caught my attention. And, uh, and so the, the idea or the concern there is that there is a tension. So talk a little bit more about, uh, I mean, I've heard this argument and you, you hear it made with arguments against dealing with uh, issues of pollution and issues of sustainability is that there are these huge trade-offs and uh, economic opportunity and economic growth if we bother to worry about being green or implementing sustainable, sustainable policies. So what, why isn't that true or is it true? It isn't true for a number of reasons, but the most important is that if you just pollute your environment, it becomes increasingly difficult to grow the economy. All you have to do today is look at Beijing in China, where the air pollution is so bad that to walk around, you have to have a, a, a mask on a filter. Um, the, the Chinese government has discovered that they can't get people to move to Beijing to work. To take jobs because the pollution so because bad. the pollution so bad, young people do not want to live in polluted places. Mm-hmm. We didn't think when you know, when I was was young, everything cities were always polluted, and you know you just felt like you didn't have a choice. <laughs> but young people know they have a choice, and when given a choice, they they don't want to live. They'd give up income if they had to to live in a cleaner place. I've seen some of these colored uh, pictures or photos that were black and white of like times before there are more strict regulations on pollution in major cities. I couldn't, I mean, I haven't, I've never experienced anything like the U.S. I mean, so what was it? I mean, you mentioned experience. I mean, what was that like? Well, it was, it was very uh, uh, disheartening. I was in Pittsburgh back in 1971, I think it was, when they had one of their air inversions. Uh, without getting into gory details, uh, during the summer, the heat would trap all the pollution from the steel mills between the mountains. And it would it was like Beijing is today. Oh, I mean, it was bad. I, I remember having to drive my car with the headlights on during the day. When I was out of my car, I had to have something, some cloth on my face to, uh, to, to protect my, my, my nose. If you break, breathe the the air, your nose would burn, your eyes would burn. That's the way it was in Pittsburgh. It was that way in Chattanooga. It was that way in Los Angeles. It was that way all over the country. That was just the air pollution. Water pollution, bad everywhere. Um, The Cuyahoga River in Cleveland caught on fire multiple times. Oh my goodness. It was burning. You go across the bridge and the river was on fire because of all the... um, the volatile organic chemicals that had been dumped into the river and they couldn't put it out. It would go out by itself eventually and then it would get, get relit. So, so uh, what's, what's the, how did we get from there to a much cleaner place where we are today? I mean, what, what's kind of the context for that? Well, during the 1970s in particular, Congress in Washington, D.C. passed a number of pieces of legislation that uh, mandated cleaning up the environment. Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Safe Drinking Water Act, and then some other uh, legislation. And it worked. All those legislation, all that legislation worked. They created the legal authority to regulate pollution, to reduce pollution. And it was those regulations enforced by mainly by the US EPA and the states that eventually got our air cleaner, our water cleaner. It isn't perfectly clean by any means, but it's way better uh, today than it was back then. And is, is this trend still in the direction of becoming more clean? Or, I mean, I know there are a lot of, a lot of rhetoric around attacking the EPA. Is, is much being done to, to actually on the ground to, to make things worse in terms of pollutants? Well, yes. Uh, uh, we've gone through these periods, these cycles, if you will, since the beginning of 1980, since Ronald Reagan was elected, where we have one president who doesn't like environmental protection and tries to undermine it, and another president who is more favorable toward environmental regulation and and is a proponent of it. So we go back and forth, back and forth. And of course, right now we have a president who 
is um, dead set against environmental regulation. His EPA director, uh, Scott Pruitt, um, has made no secret of the fact that he wants to undo as much environmental regulation as he can. Mm -hmm. When he was uh, official in, in Oklahoma, he filed suit against the EPA to try to limit what the EPA was doing. Since he's been EPA director, he's he has uh, announced that he's rolling back uh, the clean power uh, regulations. Yeah. Uh, it it's not something he can do immediately. It takes probably two to three years, at least, actually roll back those regulations. But he announced a week or so ago that his intent is to roll them back. So the message is clear. He doesn't want cleaner air. He wants to let power plants emit more pollutants. That's clear. It's almost like, I mean, it's interesting. As, not, we, this is something we've talked about <clears throat> before, but the idea that, I mean, the EPA was almost a victim of its own success in some ways. It's like we've Absolutely. forgotten that this stuff is needed and useful to keep pollution low in the cities. That's right. And and the, uh, the irony is that um, it's... Uh, the cleaner air that has uh, really made a lot of types of economic growth possible. And that's where we get into some of the cities, uh, what cities are doing. Um, I've, I've been studying this relationship between environmental protection and local economic growth in, in cities for quite a few years. And it's really got, uh, become pretty stark um, how effective it is in terms of economic growth to protect and improve the biophysical environment. So that gets us back to the uh, the smart growth versus just pure economic growth. Mm -hmm. So what are the kind of components? I mean, you I think we've talked around a little bit, but when you say, and I, I think you go on to define it specifically and, and use it as a, as a variable, but what, do you, what does smart growth mean to you and then how do you go about measuring it? Well, let me talk about sustainable economic okay. growth. Smart growth is a special case of that, so I don't think we need to talk about that specifically, but maybe we will in a while. Mm -hmm. Sustainable development is about trying to make sure that the land uh, is being used for appropriate purposes so that when you have an industrial facility, as an example, it's not adjacent to a body of water that you need to drink or <laughs> for other, other purposes, right? Sure. So, um, it's, it's an idea that Texas hasn't come to, come to grips with yet, yeah. but um, it requires some regulation of the uses of land to keep, make sure that the land that isn't appropriate to be used for certain polluting purposes um, is kept clean, right? So that's, that's one thing. Uh, it's, a lot of it is about reducing air emissions of various sorts, including carbon dioxide. Cities are very active places and uh, the amount of carbon dioxide that's emitted in cities is, is quite high. Um, if, if you uh, take uh, seriously the idea that carbon dioxide is, uh, is a, a, a greenhouse gas, it's uh, responsible uh, in large part for climate change, then cities have an obligation to try to reduce their carbon dioxide emissions. Well, how do cities do that? Well, they try to reduce the amount of vehicular traffic, mm -hmm. but not to the point where they're kind of killing their economy. They provide alternatives to one person in one motor vehicle. They provide rapid transit, public transit. They provide uh, um, uh, uh, lanes for people to drive with multiple passengers, the diamond lanes or... Mm -hmm. um, not just on the highways, but on city streets as well. Uh, they do all kinds of retrofits of buildings, promote renewable energy. If you're using renewable energy or you're not using fossil, burning fossil fuels, fossil fuels are the primary uh, causes, uh, burning fossil fuels is the primary, primary cause of, um, of the emission of uh, greenhouse gases. Um, so there are lots of things that cities can do to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide they are that is being emitted from the city so that gives you an idea of some of the things um, urban planners talk about transit-oriented housing and urban infill housing which is an idea of 
making how, um, residential housing more densely, uh, more dense, high-rise apartments, so that you have more people <clears throat> in a smaller area. And we know that when you have that kind of situation, the carbon emissions per capita are much lower. Um, uh, making parking expensive, that's always a popular thing, right? Mm -hmm. Making parking expensive so that people don't have an incentive to drive if they have an alternative. Uh, in Boston now, it costs probably $45 a day to park in the city. Um, and that's intentional to try to discourage people from, from driving. So it's a, it's essentially a whole host of <clears throat> different types of policies. It's not like there's a single right. silver bullet to solving the problem, but it's where the goal in mind is being intelligent about the long-term use of the land within the right. city and, um, and thinking about it in not just also just not the short term. So the most intelligent use over time as well, because That's right. cities are kind of living things that are going to be there for a little while. Exactly. So you need to be concerned about more. And so this is where some of the distinction from economic growth, where it's often just a, a larger number pursuing the next kind of larger number that that might sometimes uh, uh, not lead to sustainable practices. And so it's just being a little bit more diligent about using the land that they have or that the city has ex access to for the long term for the health of the city. That's right. That, I'm sorry. No, no, no I, was just, I was thinking about your point on Texas. It makes me think about um, Houston, right? Um, having essentially no zoning, but and we just experienced Hurricane Harvey uh, not too long ago. And my understanding is that a lot of the flooding is exacerbated, not just because of the amount of rain, but the amount of cement that is uh, and the way things are developed to keep the water from flowing out. I mean, is that right to your knowledge? Yes. I mean, the uh, development has occurred in Houston in a way, in every way you can imagine, that makes flooding worse. To start out with, because there's no zoning, the city cannot easily prevent developers from building homes on floodplains. Yeah. Okay. As long as uh, the, the people who buy the houses have flood insurance, federal flood insurance, most likely, the developers are, are okay about building on those floodplains. So you start out building on floodplains, plains, areas that are already prone to flooding. Then you put in lots of non-porous surfaces that hold the water and you take away all of the land that used to absorb the water or hold the water like a sponge. You take that away and you've got a formula for disaster. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that when you get large amounts of rain, as we sometimes do in Texas, that it's going to flood. It's going to flood. You know, uh, the people who work in on flood areas talk about a 10-year flood and a 20-year flood and a 50-year flood and a 100-year flood. Well, Houston has had 300-year floods in the past seven years. You know, something's wrong with that idea. There's more, either more rain coming down than they anticipated or something else is going on. And it's a combination of both. Combination really. of both. And it seems like that, I mean, the one piece that I hadn't really thought about until we were kind of going forward to this conversation is the fact of the climate changing and having more unpredictable weather patterns. is just another example of why sustainability is important, right? right? Because if you, that, that being ignored, say like in Houston, where you just pursued maybe uh, economic growth, um, it's, it's going to end up hurting the economic growth as well. That's exactly for right. not having put in sustainable uh, ways of having a city to begin with. That's right. And then the issue of, uh, you know, to your point, it's not just that. I mean, the flood, the amount of rain is also more concentrated and worse. But having some cities that aren't built to be sustainable is just sort of a, a perfect storm, it seems like. It is. And, and you hit it on the nose. Uh, Houston and Texas in general likes to convince itself that uh, if there's no regulation, no zoning, no, no other regulation, that the result is lots of economic growth. Mm -hmm. And in the short term, that's true, right? And developers come along, they build the houses, some small number of people get jobs to build the houses, the developer sells the houses, 
makes some money and is gone, mm -hmm. sells the houses to people like you and me. Unknowingly, we buy the houses without a clue that they're on a floodplain or they're vulnerable. We buy the houses, then they flood, yeah. right? And you and I end up picking up the cost or if we're really lucky and have great insurance, some insurance company ends up paying, paying at least some of the cost. And the builder gets to walk away with all the profits while we pay the costs. In the long run, the question is, what's the balance? Mm -hmm. In the long run, over a 30-year period of time, say, do you end up um, with more making more money or losing more money as a result of all the floods? And the evidence is mounting that in the short run, we make a lot of money. In the long run, we end up losing a lot of money. And that's the drag on economic development. If, you're all, if a large portion of your city is always flooding, that is a huge drag on the economic, uh, the economic health of your city. There's just no way around that. <clears throat> yeah, it seems like the classic sort of decision-making problem of in the, the separating of benefits and costs, right? You get the short-term benefits and they accrue to one group and the longer-term costs the problem. accrue to another. It's always about who benefits not about how much, but who, mm -hmm. and who pays the cost. Not the total cost, but the who pays, yeah. right? I can give you lots of examples from cities um, that know they have vulnerabilities. They know they have vulnerabilities. They also know how much it would cost to fix those vulnerabilities, but they don't want to pay the cost of fixing the vulnerabilities. So they do nothing mm -hmm. until something happens like a flood, a hurricane, a superstorm. And then somebody else ends up paying mm -hmm. to fix the problem. New York City is kind of a case in point. Uh, 20, 15 years ago, when they started talking about sustainability in, in New York City, they knew that they were vulnerable to, uh, to inundation from storms like Superstorm Sandy. And they estimated that it would be about $30 billion to fix the problem for New York City. They knew what they could do and it would be $30 billion. They didn't have $30 billion to spend. Yeah. So they searched for partners. They tried to get money from Albany, the capital of New York. They tried to get some money from the federal government. They couldn't come up with the money. So they essentially didn't do anything about the vulnerabilities. And then Superstorm Sandy happened, and somebody paid to, to fix it, but it wasn't just the city of New York. It was it, private parties, it was insurance companies, the federal government then kicked in money and so on. So it's always about who pays, who pays. And that's going on in Houston right now. There's a struggle going on between the city of Houston and the state government in, in Texas about who's going to pay, where the governor of Texas says, no, Houston, you're on your own, you pay. And Houston says, that's ridiculous. We can't pay the billions of dollars that it's going to take to, to re rebuild. Um, just to reiterate this, the, the fact is that if City of New York had been able to find the $30 billion to make the city more resilient, it would have saved $30 billion. Mm -hmm. It probably ended up costing $60 billion to, just to recover from Superstorm Sandy. They could have spent the $30 million and prevented the damage or pay after the fact the $60 billion and save thirty. Uh, mm -hmm. They would have saved thirty in the in the former, but they can't do it because the, nobody wants to pay up front, right? And that's the same kind of thing that's going on in Houston. Houston could do lots of things uh, to to prevent <clears throat> the next disaster, but they're not going to be able to find the money to it. So we'd rather pay every you know thirty billion dollars or eighty billion dollars or one hundred twenty billion dollars. This is with a B. Mm -hmm. Every time we have a big storm, rather than pay, pay the less amount of money up front. It's, it's bizarre. It's, it's uh, uh, ironic, I suppose. But that's the state of, of affairs that we're in right now. It's just really tragic. I mean, that <clears throat> highlights in my foundation's class at the Bush School, we highlight all these examples of disasters that with a fraction of the cost of paying attention to you know, worker safety or paying attention right. to the externalities or, or any of those things in advance before disaster hits could have been solved at a fraction of the price, but there was just no political will for exactly. it. Exactly. 
um, which is just this, it's just this awful situation of reactionary waiting until it's almost too late to solve the problem. And it comes at a more expensive cost, even if we can. Yes, I mean, it's looking at some of the devastation of the hurricanes, for example. Some communities just aren't going to be rebuilt. They're going to be left yeah. because the cost was too high. It's just, just wild. Yeah. So let, let's shift a little bit from some negative things yeah. to some positive things, which is what cities are what cities are doing well on being sustainable, and what of the things that you've mentioned are they doing uh, that's causing them to do well on being sustainable? Well, um, one of the things I do in my research is try to understand what cities are doing, and I've over the years I've focused on the fifty five largest cities in the U S. And that's pretty much from St. Louis up to New York City. Uh, and that's cities with a population of about 330,000 people or more. And I'm talking about the cities, not the metropolitan areas. Okay. I'm interested in cities because I'm interested in uh, what can be done as a matter of public policy. Metropolitan areas, by and large, can't, don't have any legal authority to enact policies, but cities do. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I focus primarily on, on cities. So the cities that are at the highest end of the list of doing a lot are Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Denver, um, Albuquerque. Those are really at the high end. The low end includes cities like Wichita, Kansas, um, Virginia Beach, and a few others. All right. So what are those cities that are at the top doing? They're, they're doing just about everything you can think of to enact policies that promise to improve the biophysical environment in a way that doesn't undermine their local economies. They, um, I mentioned some of those, th those um, policies. Uh, they have they, bicycle ridership programs. They have community gardens. Uh, they have um, uh, efforts to, um, um, they have what's called, um, what do they call it? Um, uh, lo local agricultural. Uh, like co-ops. They have co-ops, but they have a policy, uh, food policy council. That's what it's oh, called. Okay. That yeah. coordinates these things, coordinates farmers markets, community gardens, co-ops, coordinates them all to make sure that uh, people are getting the nutrition they need from locally grown grown foods. Cities have um, con converted their city fleets, the vehicles they own and operate, to hybrids, um, gasoline, electric hybrids, biodiesel, electric hybrids, or just straight biodiesel vehicles, all of which emit way less um carbon dioxide than, than ordinary vehicles do. Some of the best examples of the latter are uh, San Francisco and Oakland went into a cooperative venture to build a huge biodiesel refinery. So they go around collecting used cooking oil from all the restaurants in the city. Mm -hmm. They take it away for nothing so that the restaurants don't have to pay a waste yeah. this hauler to take it away. They collect it and they take it to their facility, they refine it, and then they use it in their buses and their trucks. That's so, clever. So much so, they, they can't um, meet their own demands, their own needs. Uh -huh. So they have to go out and buy biodiesel on the, on the market as well. On a smaller scale, um, Grand Rapids, Michigan, a few years ago, uh, put in a biodiesel refinery, a small facility in their own uh, city garage, they went around, they go around, they bought an old tanker truck. They go around a couple times a week and collect cooking oil. <laughs> they take it back to the facility, they refine it, and then they burn it in their, their city vehicles, their dump trucks. Yeah. Their, and if you ever get behind a, a dump, dump truck or a city bus in Grand Rapids, it kind of smells like French fries <laughs> instead of diesel fumes, you know, because they're burning cooking That's oil, awesome. basically, yeah. right? Now, talking about, about the economics of it, um, they had to put up the, the money to build the facility, which wasn't expensive. They got assistance from, um, from the university there. Um, uh, but um, uh, the last I heard from the mayor there, 
they were sa saving somewhere around $300,000 a year on diesel fuel. Wow. So doing the environmentally responsible thing, the thing that's promoting sustainability, sometimes saves you a lot of money. Yeah, right? yeah. So they made back the cost of the refinery, the little refining facility, very quickly. And the ingenuity and the creativity around it is pretty interesting. It is. And, and I think that highlights a difference, again, between thinking about just um, just economic growth or trying to do economic growth cleverly or with... Um, um, that's right. And so it, that's with the, with the sole goal of just trying to reduce costs and reduce output while promoting economic growth. Um, so one of the things that... Um, that you talk about in both the paper and the book that we haven't talked about is uh, is another correlate or another thing related to uh, sustainable cities, which is a, the presence of a creative class. Mm. And so what role, uh, given that sort of empirical finding, what role, how do you define a creative class? So what is, I know there's a little bit of controversy around creative class. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and you you even addressed that in the, the, the theory of the creative class and development that uh, you shared with me. And so um, tell us a little bit about why that why is there a controversy there? What is it? Why is there a controversy? And why do you think it's related with uh, uh, with with growth? Let me take a, a, a little step back before we okay. get to that. In the research that I do, I try to find out um, what are the modern day the contemporary drivers of local economic growth. And of course, urban economists are, you know, part of that debate, as well as other social scientists and policy people. Uh, um, my own research on the 55 largest cities tells me this. There are four distinctly different variables that actually conspire to produce economic growth. And it's very hard to say any one of them is more important than any other. Okay. All right. So sustainability, the pursuit of sustainability is a big one, right? Okay. The um, growth of the uh, the size of the creative class population is another. And I'll get, get back to that okay. to answer your question in a minute. The third is, and this is where things get a little bit dicey politically, the political ideology of the city being progressive. Mm -hmm. And the third, the fourth is having strong environmental advocacy groups. Okay. Citizens, ordinary people in the, in the city who are organized for the purpose of ag advocating for uh, environmental policies and sustainability policies. When you put those four things together, they cluster together in cities one goes with the others, tends to go with the others, but when you put them together, it's a powerful force for economic growth in this country today. But then, okay. the, so those are the things that are in your research from the 55 cities that are most strongly related with uh, economic growth right. in those cities. No question. Okay. The, the economist debate is whether some of this is really just about mainstream economic uh, prescriptions for economic growth related to investment in human capital. Mm -hmm. A lot of it seems like it could be just a particular form of investment in human capital, which it it may be at some level, but that's the debate, right? Yeah. And that debate usually takes the place takes place in the context of the creative class. Is it the creative class that's such a strong contributor to economic growth, or is it just investment in human capital? That's implied by having a large and strong creative. Class. So the base okay. over what's the specific causal mechanism there? I guess you would put yeah. could put it that way. Yeah, yeah. My own research tries to sort that out a little bit, and when I try to sort that out, it seems like there's something about the creative class that's distinctly different from mainstream investment in human capital. There's something more going on there, which agrees with the the scholar who. Um, who developed this idea of the creative class. Which his name is Richard Florida, and he's at the University of Toronto. He, he's been uh, making this argument for more than a decade that having a strong and growing uh, creative class in your city is an important, if not the most important, factor driving local economic growth. So my, t my research tends to strongly su support his, his view. Um, 
But as I said, it's, it's a little more complicated than just the creative class. Now, the thing that makes the creative class so controversial is that it's not, uh, what, what uh, Richard Florida tries to measure is how, um, uh, how many people or what proportion of the, of the uh, uh, employment base is employed in so-called creative activities or industries. Okay. And that includes everything from being a computer programmer to being a dancer and an artist and a musician, mm -hmm. right? So it's creative classes, all these arts. And, and when I first heard that, I said, ah, that can't be true. Sure, yeah. And then as I got into it, I realized that it is the people in the creative arts and, and the cr creative people who are the most supportive of the things that... Um, the city's trying to do the city the sustainability policies environmental protection um they're the people who are most active in these environmental groups so it all kind of goes together right now the the really controversial part of the creative class is that um richard florida's measure includes the size of the gay population lgbt population that is an explicit part of how large the creative class is. Mm. And so the implication is, in order to have strong economic growth, you need to grow your creative class, which implies you have to uh, grow the size of the gay community mm -hmm. in your city. And of course, if you are, um, um, if your values run contrary to that, you're going to have a lot uh, real difficulty accepting that idea. But again, as an empirical issue, that seems to be true. That it shows up a significant. It shows up, you know. You look at the cities that we've talked about that are at the high end of the mm -hmm. of the sustainability index and are experiencing high economic growth. They have relatively large creative classes, including large, relatively large gay populations. It's interesting. Um, true, interesting. So, are, are, what kind of strategies do um, do cities? utilize specifically to um, to try to attract the creative class? I mean, is that, I know, does that fit in with sustainability policies as well? Or are there other types of things cities are doing to try to, um, to, try to attract or retain those folks? Well, um, pursuing the sustainability policies attracts lots of different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. um, anybody who wants to live in a clean environment is going to be attracted to cities that do a lot of um, sustainability policies. If you are an outdoor person, you like clean air, you you like to ride your bicycle, you, you like it when a city has a bicycle ridership program or when a city has an extensive um, system of bicycle, bicycle paths where you can ride your bike to work if you, if you choose to do that. So a lot of the sustainability policies attract all kinds of people. The, the creative class piece is... And I, I've never thought I've never included these policies as explicit sustainability policies. But if a city wants to attract the creative class, they build more museums, they support their local community orchestras, uh, they have arts councils, they they work hard to get state and federal funding for their arts programs. They celebrate the arts as broadly as they can, right? And that attracts. The creative people in the creative class. Mm -hmm. That's why you see so many cities today building museums. Mm -hmm. You know, every city now, the the solution to everything is to build a museum. <laughs> but they don't make the connection that the reason why they're building the museums is because they want to attract the creative class, which is going to be an important driver for their economic growth. Okay. So, um, it seems like a pretty straightforward argument. To me, it things that will make the city more have uh, more enjoyable to live, higher quality of life, um, uh, diverse groups of people um, fit in with things that make sense. Why? Why is it this is uh, in some ways still? Why do you think this is still a controversial thing to put forward? It seems pretty straightforward to me. Uh, there, there are probably a couple of reasons for that. One is the, as I said, the values issues. Um, and that's wrapped up in political ideologies. Uh, some people um, uh, 
more and more people today are willing to forego more economic growth in order to maintain what they see as a particular set of values. Okay. And so um, if I came to some cities and said, you can grow your local economy big time uh, by attracting the creative class, they might say, no, thanks. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll take the lower rate of economic growth rather than having the type of community they might want. Exactly. So, um, so that's a, that, that's a significant piece of this, of this puzzle. It's also uh, reinforced by um, adherence to the view that the only thing that matters is individual liberty. And all the policies and programs that I've talked about require government. Mm -hmm. They require that government do things, including regulate the use of the land. That gets in the way of, uh, as many people see it, that gets in the way of exercise of individual liberty. Mm -hmm. You see in Texas that the, the common view that if I own a piece of property, if I own it, I should be able to do anything I want with it. And I mean that literally. Mm -hmm. I should be able to do anything I want with it. Mm -hmm. And no government should tell, be able to tell me that I can't. I, could, I should be allowed to pollute it. I should be able, allowed to use all the water that's there. I should be free to do what I want. And so that creates the immediate conflict between that definition of individual liberty and doing all the things that promote today promote economic growth and development, mm -hmm. right? I don't think, uh, I think a lot of people haven't quite come to grips with that yet. A lot of people still think the way you promote economic growth is to have less government, but that isn't true anymore. It isn't true. If, if it ever was true, it certainly isn't true in cities today. Yeah, and your, your individual liberty argument uh, reminds me, uh, recently I had a conversation with John Schuschler, who appeared on the podcast as well, and we, we, we talked about the importance of freedom and the importance of liberty and what people mean when they say that. And so I'm glad that you sort of use specifically uh, individual liberty and liberty in the negative sense, liberty from things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I we highlighted there that I that uh, that's worth highlighting, I think it, particularly in the U.S., people focus on that and with good reason, right? We're, we've been suspicious of government as a country that started out. We have a healthy skepticism usually of some things. Sometimes maybe it goes past the point of being healthy, right? Sure. And the idea is that sometimes the individual liberty is in contention with positive liberty, access to things right. like access to clean water and access to clean air and those types of things. And so it seems like we do end up hyper-focused on these individual, individual liberty, individual negative liberties, mm -hmm. freedom from things. There's, there's a, a few more pieces of this that it might be worth evaluating. Absolutely. Um, so uh, one other piece of this, I know that you mentioned in the book and um, that I'm sure would be a natural extension question of our listeners is we talked about mostly the largest 55 cities, which I think is where your uh, research focuses. And so someone in a, in a city outside of those, which is a lot of them, might question, hey, does this still hold for my 5,000 town, 5,000 person town or you know, the size of the town we're in right now, uh, College Station, uh, you know, around 100,000. Do these same, what's the evidence of, of of the cities outside of the top 55 even, or is there is there change within those? Because you're going for a pretty low number of, what, I think 300,000 was maybe the lowest 20, to 20 million. Mm -hmm. And so the, does the context of the population size, what role does that play in the way in which cities should think about sustainability? Well, the, the issues are all the same. Uh, what differs is the capacity of the local government, if you will, to be able to do anything about it. Um, small municipalities um, have much uh, um, more limited government. Uh, if you go to a, a, a municipality of 5,000 or 10,000 people, it's only going to have the bare bones of city departments, which you know, from a, an anti-government perspective is a good thing, mm -hmm. but there won't be any capacity in that government to address many of the issues that you're, you're talking about. There's nobody there to actually do any of these policies. So it's, it's really up to individuals to, 
to do things on their own. And that's a very difficult thing mm -hmm. to do. I mean, I can, I know that, um, you know, when I recycle my trash or when I drive my Prius, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not having, um, I may not be having much uh, ultimate impact on, mm -hmm. on things like climate change or because somebody's going to compensate for what I'm doing and pollute more, uh, recycle less. So, so the frustration is that if, if a government isn't organizing this kind of thing, that individual actions can be defeated by other individuals, basically. And at that level, are, are, do they, um, at what level do, do cities start trying to implement economic development type plans? So I guess is, is it that at the lower levels, not, I guess maybe not quite that small, but somewhere a little bit larger than that, but maybe under the 300, I mean, is it, do you, do you believe or do you think the case still holds that as part of a, a development or economic development strategy, it's still not in contention or, excuse me, not in tension with um, sustainability policies? Well, I think it is in, in tension. It's just, it's just uh, at a much smaller scale. It's a scale issue. I think uh, uh, economic development activities are still going on in small places. But uh, there isn't anybody there to um, uh, to promote the idea of doing it in some sustainable way. And in fact, in most small places, there is some sort of a regional or county multi-municipality chamber of commerce, where a chamber of commerce is a private sector organization. Mm -hmm. uh, it's usually uh, incorporated as a nonprofit organization, but uh, it is a uh, it promotes economic growth and development in traditional ways. Just attract any business that you can attract, and it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Get the Chamber of Commerce some more members. That's all it is, right? So nobody, there is no often no voice for uh, for sustainability or related kinds of policies in smaller places. But the but the the idea should then still hold it if they 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 should also experience. There's not a, is there a reason to expect they wouldn't. Doing the four categories, including sustainability, uh, politics not really in control of as much. But is do you think that the uh, those things would still contribute to growth at those smaller city levels, or are they just something different? I don't know. It's a good question. I don't think there's much research to guide us on very small communities. Certainly on uh, larger larger cities than you're talking about, cities of a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand. There. The same kinds of things apply. I mentioned Grand Rapids a little while mm -hmm. ago. That's a city of a little over 200,000. So things going, Chattanooga is another one. Very, very uh, uh, entrepreneurial when it comes to sustainability. You might not expect that from a city in Tennessee, but, um, but they, over the years, have been extremely uh, creative in pursuing uh, economic growth uh, in a sustainable way. Uh, they... Uh, this hap a lot of this happened under Mayor Corker, who is now, of course, senator from, from Tennessee, who's gotten a lot of press <laughs> Lately, in recent yeah. days, yeah. and it was just announced he's not running for re-election. But he was mayor of Chattanooga, and under his watch, on his watch, he, he developed, uh, and the city government developed some really innovative uh, sustainability programs. The problem in Chattanooga, as I alluded to a while ago, was back in the 70s, they, they had real serious air pollution problems. They had steel mills in Chattanooga. A lot of people don't know that, but they did. And that they were once called by Parade Magazine, the city with the worst air pollution in the country. And I think it's probably true. All right, so um, subsequently the economy there tanked. The steel mills mo moved out. They all moved overseas mm -hmm. and they lost all the jobs from the steel mills. And so the unemployment skyrocketed to the low 20s at one point. Wow. And it was a city in desperate shape. And um, around the time Mayor Corker uh, took over, um, they, the city started putting together an economic development plan. And they all agreed on one thing. They didn't want to do it the old fashioned way because they didn't want to go back to the days of high pollution. Mm -hmm. They didn't want their rivers and streams polluted. 
They didn't want their air polluted. So they embarked on this very impressive uh, campaign, which was oriented around electric vehicles. They built, uh, the story went like this. See if I can remember the details. <laughs> at, at some point, the, the regional transit authority, the county transit authority, needed to replace its buses. And they decided in the context of all this that they wanted to buy electric buses. And so they did a search for electric bus manufacturers and they discovered there was no electric bus manufacturer in the United States. They could have bought electric buses from Japan or from Sweden. And that was it. So they decided to build, create the capacity to build electric buses in Chattanooga. All right. Wow. So they built a facility and they worked with the UT Chattanooga campus, some of the engineers there, and they designed electric buses and they brought in the parts mm -hmm. and assembled them in Chattanooga. And the first customer was the city and the county transit authority. They bought the buses and soon they were selling buses around the country. They, they sold buses to Tampa. They sold buses to, I believe it was San Diego. Mm -hmm. And so it was starting to build. They built a research institute, the Electric Vehicle Research Institute, adjacent to the plant. By the way, they used a, a closed military base as the site of this. They uh, built a, a, an institute to do the research and a museum, so you could see electric vehicles, mm -hmm. you know. So they did this, and it was going okay until the recession hit in 2009. Mm -hmm. And no city was buying buses anywhere in the country because they couldn't get the money to finance them. And so the whole uh, manufacturing thing kind of fell apart. But what happened subsequently was they had built up such a talent pool of how to build electric buses. I should also add that as they were building the buses, they were also adding uh, the capacity to build the components. Instead of importing a electric motor from Japan, they built the capacity to build the electric motors right there and get the develop the expertise mm -hmm. and the benefits from doing that. Um, even after the electric bus uh, and vehicle facility um, uh, closed, uh, they had such expertise around electric vehicles that Nissan decided to build their Leaf electric vehicle there. And then Volkswagen decided to build its electric vehicle there. And it became a, a bit of a snowball. Why, why did they choose there? Choose this? Well, they got some, some benefits. They got mm -hmm. some tax breaks and things. But they also had a talent pool they could call out of people who had the expertise that they needed. Mm -hmm. and if they if they located somewhere else, they'd have to train people from scratch, yeah. and and bear the cost of that. So, it it's largely a success story for Chattanooga how they developed their local economy around uh, around sustainability, around electric vehicles and electric hybrid vehicles. It's interesting the different things that the cities try to be creative about to. Uh, be sustainable and save money and also be more green. I mean, the things that they come up with when they set their minds to it is kind of, it's kind of interesting. It is. And not all of them work. Yeah, sure. You sure. know, there's a lot of experimentation. They try this, they try that. Doesn't work. Phoenix tried to uh, be the um, solar panel manufacturing capital of the world. And of course, um, the Chinese uh, government came in and bought up all the companies and moved the manufacturing to China and undercut them on price. And that didn't work out so well. So not all of them work, but it's worth the try for mm -hmm. sure. So one thing I want to kind of wrap up on, uh, we're getting close to the hour mark. Um, one thing I want to do with this podcast is to talk sort of openly about how different uh, values are uh, used to judge different outcomes. And so you mentioned, um, we, we talked a little bit about individual liberty and it, the preference among a lot of Texans to not have any um, government infringement um, mm -hmm. on their property and mm -hmm. have, have a lot of freedom from government. Um, but in the, in, the, uh, in the Taking Sustainable Cities Seriously, you have a, a chapter 
it sort of poses the question, is a sustainable city more egalitarian? Mm -hmm. Um, And so essentially, are sustainable cities better at, um, well, I'll let you define it, but as I think about it, are they they better at treating their citizens as as having equal human worth? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm going to argue for in this podcast is that uh, from a a value base of humans should have equal worth, that we're all humans, and so we need to keep that in mind when we're thinking about uh, about policies and how they impact people because policies impact different people differently. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be aware of that. And my assertion is that, um, that, that all human life is valuable and we should seek to protect it. And so um, through this, do you find that sustainable cities uh, of this particular value of being egalitarian in the sense that they, they treat the citizens of that city as having equal worth um, and think about also future generations that it might be impacting and just trying to think about that in a, in, in a, in a careful way. I mean, are the sustainable cities doing a better job at having societies that treat their citizens as having at least equal worth? That's a big question. <laughs> Good. I saved it for last. <laughs> the equity issue has, two sides to it. You you just addressed one of them, uh-huh. which is, um, is it a matter of just the value of equality? Um, and if it is, uh, if a city has to collectively adopt the value of equality in order to, by definition, be more sustainable, then I would say cities are, don't, not too many cities measure up to that, okay? Um, but, uh, there is another dimension to that, at least two, two other dimensions I'll talk about. One is there's a, there is a dilemma built into what we talked about earlier, which is, and Richard Florida has written about this in his latest book, cities that are experiencing the most rapid economic growth and the, the most rapid increase in their creative class also have the greatest inequality, income inequality. That it does, and generally, economic growth promotes income inequality, mm-hmm. regardless of whether it has anything to do with creative class. Mm-hmm. If you grow your economy, the benefits of that are not going to be distributed evenly. Over that's just a fact of life mm-hmm. in in uh, uh, our kind of economy. All right. With that said, the question then turns for me to a que- to an issue of. What are are our cities doing to try to mitigate that as a matter of public policy? And some cities do try to mitigate the inequality and some cities don't. Some cities just don't think it's important to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, San Francisco is probably the most aggressive, possibly on the same par with New York City. But San Francisco is the city that that I think of. Uh, in terms of they measure the services that are delivered to the citizens, the residents, I should say, of the city at, in, in gory detail. They know how, what kinds of city services every household gets in the city. And they analyze that regularly to make sure that no part of the city is being treated worse or better than any other part of the city. That's pretty remarkable, yeah. right? Contrast that with, say, Houston, where the poorer parts of the city demonstrably get fewer services, like running water, like storm drainage, basic services, right? They don't get the services, and the public officials tend to be willing to admit that they don't get the services because they don't pay what they consider to be their fair share of taxes. Right. People get services based on how much taxes they pay. Well, that's contrary to an egalitarian kind of value, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a, you know, a a nice contrast between San Francisco on one hand. There are other cities that are more like San Francisco than Houston, but most cities are probably a bit more like Houston. So that's that's uh, that second piece. The third piece is is this. Many of the policies that cities do in fact pursue as part of their sustainability initiatives 
have differential benefits for relatively poor people. There's no question about it. If a city has a lead paint abatement program where they're taking lead paint out of houses, mm -hmm. that benefits poor people more than wealthy people mm -hmm. because poor people are much more likely to be exposed to lead paint in their residences, mm -hmm. right? That's right, yeah. If, if, um, if, if a city has um, asbestos abatement program, that's going to benefit, uh, that does in fact benefit relatively poor people more than relatively rich people, right? Mm -hmm. Because poor people are more likely to live in houses that have asbestos in them, mm -hmm. right? If you're, if you're wealthy and can move anywhere you want, you're not going to want to live in a house with asbestos. You're either going to have it removed yourself or you're just going to buy a house that has no asbestos to begin with. Yeah. If you're poorer, you'll, you'll, you'll end up living in a place that nobody's bothered to move the, remove the asbestos. Um, a lot of uh, city programs are geared toward trying to reduce childhood asthma as a health problem. That's part of their sustainability programs, reduce childhood asthma by producing cleaner uh, living environments. That by far benefits uh, poor people more than middle-class people. So they may not call them equity programs. They may not even say they're pursuing equity, but the impact of their sustainability programs is to sometimes okay, produce differential cool. benefits that benefit People. I could go on and on about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It dawns on me too, just in closing it, the piece we didn't really talk about is the, the, the health piece for the, yeah. the relationship between trying to be conscious about sustainability and, the, and what you're doing environmentally, but also, I mean, we touched on the beginning, but the the health consequences of not paying attention to these things, it's, it yeah. becomes a public health issue yeah. um, that, that um, needs to be considered as well, that sustainability concerns kind of keep that as part of the mix. Without a doubt, I've argued in my writing that uh, the primary motivator for cities doing sustainability is to promote economic, uh, to promote um, public health and well-being, mm -hmm. right? The irony, I suppose, is that they do that by assumption. They, they don't know for sure that when they put in bike paths or have a bicycle ridership program or reduce their um, their carbon emissions or do more zoning to protect uh, environmentally sensitive areas and so on and so forth. They don't know what the health impacts of those policies um, is. They just don't know. And there's very little research on that. I just started doing some research with a colleague in public health at, at uh, Texas A&M um, to investigate that. We've published a couple of papers that shows that there are health links to these sustainability programs that by and large cities that do these programs have healthier populations in a number of different indicators. It, it's far from definitive research mm -hmm. for, for a variety of reasons, but it's a line of inquiry. It's a line of research that is desperately needed and you're going to see a lot more in the, in the next uh, decade or so. Well, good. Then we can learn more about what we don't know. Tying it together. Right. And what we should be doing. What we should be doing, yeah. Which ties back into the whole theme of well, these discussions is trying to find solutions to some of the thing some of the broader public problems that we're dealing exactly. with. Exactly. All right. Well thanks, Ken. I really appreciate this. Um, oh, my pleasure. I'd give people an opportunity to either uh, give a plug to their own website or their own social media or um, contact information for any of the listeners. Is there any of that that you would like to put a plug in for? Well, I, I have a website that's called Our Green Cities. Uh, I have a bunch of other websites, too. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, if you're interested in this, you can you can search the Our Green Cities or you can just search for Taking Sustainable Cities Seriously. That's Excellent. the name of my book and, and my research. And I do in, encourage to check uh, Kent's book out again. That's Taking Sustainable Cities Seriously. Um, and uh, thanks again. This was a lot of fun, Kent. Okay, Justin. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Problems. These episodes can be found on iTunes Podcast, SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, and Pocket Casts, along with on our YouTube channel at Public Problems. You can find these episodes on any of these mediums by simply searching for Public Problems. 
We also are maintaining a Facebook page. It's at Public Problems Podcast. Here we are sharing more information about the podcasts and having a little bit of a discussion on current topics. We'll also be hosting an event in January called Public Problems 101, a January review of the evidence. This will be a public classroom learning experience that you can participate in. Simply find the event on our Facebook page and click that you're interested in participating. More information on that will be forthcoming in the next couple of months. Thanks again for your time, and we hope that you're enjoying the podcast. Have a nice day.